Okay, I wanted to speak about, I'm going to be jumping off of a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos is one that uh, discussion of this Mishnah sometimes involves mentioning some painful incidents that people that have been in everyone's lives, but it's an important Mishnah, as all Mishnahs, of course, but it's one that is relevant directly in the way many people and many communities live. This is a Mishnah, this fifth chapter in Pikayavos, Mishnah Chaf, Mishnah 20. Kol machlokas shehi l'shem shamayim. Any division or conflict, dispute, that is for the sake of heaven, sofa lehiskayim. Its end will endure. V'she'eno l'shem shamayim. Any machlokas, any division, dispute, that is not for the sake of heaven, ain sofa lehiskayim. Its, its end, meaning like the natural end, if you will, is, um, will not endure. Ezohi machlokas shehi l'shem shamayim. So now define your terms. What does it mean to have a dispute that is for the sake of heaven? Zomachlokas Hillel v'shamay. This is the dispute between the two great leaders of, rabbinic leaders of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. Hillel and Shammai. V'she'eno l'shem shamayim. What is a dispute that is not for the sake of heaven? Zomachlokas Korach v'chol adoso. This is the dispute between Korach or the Machlokas of Korach, and his community. So there are several angles, uh, several approaches that we could use just to understand what's uh, going on here. First of all, the comparison between what is for the sake of heaven and not for the sake of heaven doesn't seem to match up. Because Machlokas L'Shem Shamayim, so tell me, who are the two sides of the dispute? You have Hillel and Shammai. These names are well known, and the names of their students, their, their yeshivas are well known for anyone who has ever learned a couple of Mishnayos here or there, or learned Gemara, that we have Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, that had dozens and dozens, several dozens, maybe in the hundreds of disagreements on all areas of Jewish law. And Hillel and Shammai, of course, knew each other, and they were both on the Sanhedrin in their day, and uh, at the same time. And they disagreed over every area of Jewish law. However, when it discusses the dispute that is not for the sake of heaven, the language that's used is Korach v'chol adoso. Korach and his whole community. Now, Korach and his whole community, that's not the dispute. If you open up Parsha's Korach, Korach is having a dispute with Moshe. Moshe and Aaron, if you will. He's not having a dispute with his community, yet that's, or his community, meaning his people, it doesn't seem that way at least, seems here though that the mission is saying that there's a dispute that it's just about Korach and his people. Who are his people? So his people, if you, uh, you learned some of the deeper insights into the Parsha last week, Parsha Shmos, you had Dasan and Aviram, who are mentioned in Rashi and in the Medrashim several times, in, last, in uh, this past week's Parsha. Dasan and Aviram are mentioned by name later in Parsha's Korach, and we discover more about you know, who they are, what they're all about. It seems that Korach and Dasan and Aviram were not really on the same page. If you pay attention to the story there with Korach, it seems that Korach and Dasan and Aviram 
had different agendas entirely. Korach approaches Moshe and Aaron, and he says, we are all holy. Why did you, why do you assert yourselves and aggrandize yourselves at the expense of all of the people? And Moshe's reply to Korach is, everyone who has this disagreement with me should bring a pan of ketores, of incense, and we'll have an incense contest. We'll see who Hashem chooses. But when it comes to Dothan and Aviram, even though it seems like they're all on the same side, Moshe wants to have an exchange with Dothan and Aviram, but he asks Dothan and Aviram to come meet him. And Dothan and Aviram say, no, we don't even want to have any kind of discussion. And when they bring up their gripe, their disagreement with Moshe, they mention nothing about Ketores, about serving Hashem, about Aaron. Their complaints are what we would call political. They have a political disagreement. What is the political disagreement? They say, well, for, first of all, you took us out of Egypt. You took us out of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, Egypt was wonderful. You know what Mitzrayim was? It was an Eretz Zavas Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if I ask anyone in this room, which land is flowing with milk and honey? I think everybody would push the buzzer and they would know the answer. The answer is the Holy Land, Eretz Yisrael. No one's calling Mitzrayim a land flowing with milk and honey. Eretz Yisrael Dash. Well, Dustin and Aviram called Mitzrayim, called Egypt, land flowing with milk and honey. And then they say, and then you didn't bring us to a land, which is what you promised to do. So they're coming from a political point of view. They said, you asserted yourself to be the leader of the Jewish people and you made a campaign promise. You're taking us out of Egypt, which we thought was probably a bad idea. But you promised you would bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey. You would bring us to a wonderful place where we would have vineyards, etc. And yet, you clearly did not do that. Meaning, this Parsha Korach is the Parsha right after Shlach, where they were told that they would stay in the desert for 40 years. So you didn't fulfill your campaign promise. This is their complaint. It's of a political nature. So now what we have here, and I'll just give you a very quick run-through, because there are literally hundreds of examples, but I don't want to spend the time giving hundreds of examples. I'll give maybe less than a dozen, just in quick order. Uh, that there have been disputes, disagreements that have existed within the Jewish people since that time, and before that, because you can go all the way back to Yosef and his brothers, if you really want to get to the root of it which is disagreements and disputes that the Jewish people have had for the last 3,500 years. And sometimes it is a machlokas l'shem shemayim, and sometimes it's a machlokas shelo l'shem shemayim, not for the sake of heaven. And I will tell you, I think we all know this, when you're in it, you don't know which it is. Or, to say it a little less favorably, when you're in it, you think for sure it's l'shem shemayim. It's of course for the sake of heaven. I'm fighting for principle. And sometimes it takes hindsight. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people can look immediately and watch a dispute for the sake of heaven, in air quotes, and it's like, no, that's not for the sake of heaven. <laughs> you know, these guys are fooling themselves if they think that's what it is. Sometimes it seems like a disagreement for the sake of heaven at the time, but just with a little bit of hindsight... Sometimes it's 10 years, sometimes it's one year, sometimes it's 100 years. You look back and you say, okay, this wasn't for the sake of heaven. 
Each person wanted to be in charge. They wanted to control the money, right? They wanted the power, you know, and that's it. But it was not for the sake of heaven at all. So, like I said, we can use hindsight. Sometimes you don't need hindsight. You know, there's today in the world, there are two major divisions that are existing in different orthodox institutions. One is Hasidic, the other one is Litvish, not Hasidic at all. And it is a disagreement between this one, two brothers are fighting, this one, two brothers-in-law are fighting. And everyone around the world understands that this is Shalom L'Shem Shemayim. They see it, but okay, they're, they're, you know, they're fighting. And so, you know, it's money, it's power, it's the bank accounts, it's this, it's that. You know, and they just, <coughs> and, it, and it goes like that. But sometimes there are some very deep issues, fundamental issues of principle and I, I know, you probably know some of these cases where it is a matter of principle, but the people who are disagreeing, one of the major tools in their toolbox to argue is to say that it's not L'Shem Shemayim. To say that it's about money. Or to say that it's about power. And it's tragic because the people who are on the principle side of it get upset because they say, we want to say that this is L'Shem Shemayim. We believe that is L'Shem Shemayim, that is for the sake of heaven. But the other side, in order to advance their cause, will say, oh, it's not for the sake of heaven. Or it's, this is a common canard, it's sinas chinam, it's baseless hatred. And it's not baseless hatred. Meaning, there's a matter of principle, there's a halachic matter that is under, in dispute. And I think that's what the Mishnah is saying over here when it mentions Korach v'chol Adaso. One is that Korach and his people themselves were arguing. And the second level of understanding it is that Moshe and Aaron were L'shem Shemayim. It's Korach who was not. And that is always a difficult situation because what's happening, and I think the Mishnah is alluding to this, is that you can have a machlokas, a dispute, where one side is L'shem Shemayim and the other one is not. But when the other side is not L'shem Shemayim, is not for the sake of heaven, then it's a skewed, it's a skewed dispute. Because you're not fighting with the same weapons. You're not fighting with the same rhetoric. And this becomes uh, very difficult to, to navigate. In a similar vein, I don't, I'll say Lahavdil because it's not exactly the same. There was a very great difficulty in the, after 9-11, in navigating for the United States to navigate that thing called the war on terror. Because one of the mechanisms that was being used over here is that the terrorists were not following the Geneva Conventions. But the United States was expect, expected to follow all the standard rules of proper warfare. And the argument was... How can you expect us to follow the Geneva Conventions when the other side isn't? There has to be some sort of equality. So when you have a dispute, you have a disagreement, you have a battle, you have a war, and the two sides are not fighting in the same way or along the same lines of principle, it becomes extremely difficult to navigate it properly without being accused of shenanigans and of, and of fighting uh, unfairly. So the machloksim that go, the disputes that go, all the way back, we have here, and this is something that is a significant issue all on its own, which I'm just going to mention the headline of, is how do we understand the dis disagreement between Yosef and his brothers? Because it's very clear 
that as you advance in the Parsha, meaning from the Parsha where that we are introduced to them, um, Parsha's Vayeshev, it seems at first like it's just some sort of matter of sibling rivalry. But when you go into the story, even just a little bit, you don't even have to go on the deepest level. You just go to a certain level of understanding the plot lines of it. You realize that there certainly was an element that was the L'shem Shemayim, that was for the sake of heaven. And this runs through to the end of the Parshios of Bereshis <coughs> that we ended a couple of weeks ago. Then you have another kind of Machlokas, which is last week's Parsha, which is that there's a disagreement on how the Jews should handle Paro. And this was found at the end of last week's Parsha, where the rabbis identified Dasan and Aviram as disagreeing with Moshe over a matter of principle that Moshe was only making things worse for them. You want to free them from slavery? It's only going to make things worse if you bring up that cause to Paro. And I mentioned this yesterday in Shul. They were right for the moment. They were so right that Moshe Rabbeinu agreed with them and approached Hashem at the end of last week's Parsha, said, you know, doesn't an Aviram, they said that I just made things worse. Hashem, they're right. You just made things worse by sending me. And Hashem says, just wait. You'll see now everything will work out. But clearly in the short term, they had a point. So that's one kind of L'shem Shemaim, meaning what's better for the Jews? Meaning, are you advancing their cause or not? Or are you making things worse for them? Then you move on to something that could be called Shalol L'shem Shemaim, but again, a matter of principle. And when it came to the golden calf, these were Jews. There was an, you know, you can blame the Erev Rav for it, as you can blame everything on the Erev Rav, meaning the, the Egyptians who came with them out of Mitzrayim. But then it's a religious matter, right? I won't call it L'shem Shemayim, but to the extent that they thought this golden calf somehow represented God or a God, it was for the sake of religion. So it was a war of religion, meaning in Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, took care of them and 3,000 were killed and there was a plague, etc. You jump to Korach, you have with Korach it's religious, with Dustin and Aviram it's political. Then you go later in Jewish history, and this is where it gets complicated, because Yeravam, Yeravam ben Nevat, was the king of the northern kingdom, only because he, di- he disagreed years before he became the king. He was a principled opposition leader against Shlomo for accusing Shlomo of wasting public funds. What's more L'shem Shemaim than that? You know, it's Yiddish Gelt, you know, like they say. You're taking, you're taxing the Jews, you're overtaxing them so you can build fancy palaces. For He was principled. And yet, and this is the point, and with this I'll close this part one over here. He was principled. And yet, you see clearly the fact that he broke away, formed a kingdom, which was done under the guidance of a prophet. A Navi told him, Achia Hashiloni, a prophet of Hashem, told him to break away and create a separate kingdom. However, once he built the kingdom, he made, in order to create his own government-sponsored religion so that people would not be tempted to go back to the temple. In Yerushalayim, he created his own religion, which involved golden calves, interestingly enough, and they broke away from worshipping Hashem and began a few hundred years worth of Avodah Zarah, 
of idolatry. So it's something that started in a principled way, but with time, and especially with what was certainly an ulterior motive when he started up at the beginning, it turned into something that was not principled. And this goes to, and with this I'll close this part, the Alter of Slabotka made a comment. Now, he passed away in 1928. The yeshiva in Slabotka was around at the turn of the 20th century, a little bit before, for 20 years afterwards. And he was known for having a tremendous insight into the, you know, human nature, the potentials of human nature. Human beings at their greatest and at their worst. And the Alter of Slabotka had a turn of phrase. He said, in our day and age, and remember, that day and age is when Jews were, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews were leaving the fold and joining various Marxist communist causes in the late 1800s. There were some of the finest yeshivas that were ever known were also founded at the turn of the uh, 1800s into the 1900s. So there are many disputes, even within some of the yeshivas. The altar said, it is certainly possible in our day and age to have a machlokas l'shem shamayim, to have disputes that are truly for the sake of heaven. However, they do not last longer than five minutes. Because you can start off principled, but after five minutes, it becomes, it's about me. And this is something that would end up recurring over and over again throughout Jewish history. So as a quick example, we are familiar with Hanukkah and the Hashmonayim, the Maccabees. When the Hashmonayim were fighting off the Greeks and the Hellenists, they were certainly acting for the sake of heaven. And yet, in the 120 years after the story of Hanukkah, the Hashmonayim ended up being divided in dozens of little ways and had recurring civil wars up until they brought in the Romans to solve their problem for them. And we all know how that worked out. So this was a case of something that clearly started L'Shem Shemayim. And everyone can tell me, if you know a little bit of history, you know about Yehuda Maccabee, and maybe you know he died, but then Shimon took over. And then it just took a little bit of time before the whole thing devolved into civil war. The same thing happened a little earlier. If you know your Pirkei Avos, you've heard of the great Shimon HaTzadik, who was the Kohen Gadol, who was the last of the men of the great assembly, Yanshei Knesset Agdola. And he was a great man who said the world stood on uh, Torah, Voda, and Vilas Chasadim, and Chesed. And yet, once he died, his sons couldn't hold it together. And it was his older son, who had wanted to be Kohen Gadol, and yet didn't get to be Kohen Gadol, he left and he moved to Egypt. And he, he opened his own base of in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. And this would continue to go on, so that the Mishnah mentions Hillel and Shammai, but this means that it's sort of implying, and the Arma Farshim will say this, that the men, Hillel and Shammai, acted L'shem Shammayim. Their students, base Hillel and base Shammai, were obviously tzaddikim of a certain caliber, otherwise we wouldn't be mentioning them in the Gemara constantly, but the fact that the Mishnah doesn't say, what's a dispute for the sake of heaven? The machlokas, the, the disagreements between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. It doesn't say that. It just says Hillel and Shammai, implying that Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. Eh. And then things would go on in this vein. Now, you have the rabbis and the tzedukim, the Sadducees. So we're here, so we argue that the tzedukim are not L'shem Shammai. 
I promise you that Sudukim at the time would certainly have said that they were acting for the sake of heaven. Then you had, after the time of the Gemara, you had around 1,300 years worth of some serious, very ugly disputes that took place all over Jewish communities in Europe and in the Middle East, which were clearly not L'Shem Shemaim. Rabbis were um, informed on by you know, the presidents of their communities for not behaving, and they were thrown in jail. Very difficult times, each one deserving of its own shear. And then we come to nowadays, where there are so many different kinds of divisions in the Jewish community, and there are political divisions in the, every Jewish community in the world, but there are also religious divisions. In Jewish, and there are sometimes what I call very simply ethnic divisions within a Jewish community. Where sometimes it's not even a matter, it's not even a religious matter per se, except it's like there are certain ethnic sensibilities that one community will have that another one will not. And the most difficult thing to do, which requires serious guidance, requires serious da'as, which means the ability to understand things for what they really are, involves knowing the distinction between the two and having private conversations with people to try to determine uh, what, you know, what should be done. Years ago here in Shul, at my installation, I quoted a rabbi from the 1800s. <clears throat> He's not well known. In fact, I don't know his name. This, he, wrote a, he, he wrote responsa, chuvos. Ein habedolach. It's a safer of chuvos. I had never heard of it. The reason I heard of it isn't because I knew any of his responsa, but it's because the Rosh Hashiva of the yeshiva I went to, Neri Stroller of Roderman, would quote something that this rabbi wrote in his introduction, right? Most books have introductions, some sort of essay. Many of the introductions are ignored over the years because they don't actually have the content of the book, the reason why you're opening the book, right? It's usually the guy's thanking his parents and his wife and whatever. Like, like there's no mamashas, there's no content there, so people ignore it. But this Sefer, he, he has a story, and I'll close with the story. He says, he was a rogue in a community, and there was a chazan in the community, meaning it wasn't like just a shul, it was the whole town. The chazan, the professional hired chazan of this community, when the rogue came to town, he saw that this chazan was an immoral man. Immoral in all sorts of ways that are obvious when I use the word immoral, and in unobvious ways. And he wanted to, he didn't want to have this chazan in the community. But he made a decision based on the guidance of his teachers. And he uses this phrase, which is a very powerful phrase. He says, Which is a shocking phrase, which I don't know that I would have the guts to say such a thing. But he said, better to place an idol in the sanctuary as long as there's no dispute, no argument in Israel. Now, I think we all feel, well, I'm not actually going to put a getchka, I'm not going to put an idol in the shul just so that if people in the shul want it. However, he said, that is the extent to which we need to be careful not to have disputes. So even though he wanted to wage a holy war to get rid of this immoral chazan, he, he didn't say anything. Not that he didn't still try to get rid of the chazan or try to contemplate how the, the chazan should be, you know, let go. 
but that there should not be machlokas. So the end of the story that I discovered later, that a Rebbe of mine told me, Ripsi Berkowitz, one of the Raymond Nerystral, Ripsi said, I asked him about this story, about this, the Sefer, he told me all about it. And Ripsi told me, he said, the conclusion of the story was that he didn't engage in some sort of public warfare to get rid of the Chazan. He merely invited the Chazan over for dinner and proceeded to give him one shot after another, one l'chaim, one shot after another. And the chazan, as he left the rabbi's house, was in a mood and did something uh, publicly uh, flagrant. And people in the community saw it, and that's how they, uh, just to say that, yeah, that's how they got rid of it. Anyway, weird ending to the story. But the, the point is over here, not to have this machlokas. Now I say this as I conclude where I think Jewish communities around the world, here in Cleveland, but really everywhere, went through significant machlokas as a result of all the COVID stuff and the machloksin in COVID, which many people were noticing and were telling me, and I was sharing with people, that in some ways it mirrored the patterns of the way that things go on, disagreements go on over Jewish issues. So that one Rav I know had a very turn of phrase, he said, he was commenting on someone, he says, hey, you know, you're talking, arguing, this is like two and a half years ago, about COVID, you know how you feel that the people on one side of you are all nut jobs, and the people on the other side of you are all conspiracy theorists, nut jobs on their own, and that only you have the proper attitude on how to handle COVID? Welcome to the Jewish community. <laughs> he said, you know, meaning everyone, what's the line? Everyone to the left of me is lazy. Everyone to the right of me is crazy. And I am perfect. My Yiddishkeit is the exact centrist middle of the road. You know, I'm doing it all correctly. And then we see. We see shuls that lost members because they had masks. We had shuls that lost members because they're not wearing masks anymore. Meaning it was like you couldn't get like just the right balance to know that the right time to get rid of masks was August 24th, 2020, and not August 23rd, and not August 25th, and da 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 da, and right, all of that. This goes into the personal issue, meaning this is the, the, uh, the issue of machlokas, uh, of disagreements, and trying, and of course, every side felt, as they still do, that they are l'shem shemayim, that they're acting, you know, for the sake of heaven, for the greater public health, and, you know, and so on. So those are the thoughts to leave with you, just uh, that this is a good time to take stock of the things that you have disagreements and disputes, whether it's personal in your family or in your community, or just the way that you consider the disputes going on all over the world, where your position to evaluate, to just undergo that sort of self-evaluation, to know if it is L'shem Shemayim or not, <clears throat> and to make adjustments uh, accordingly. I'll leave it there for now. If anyone has any questions, I'd love to hear. It doesn't have to be on this topic. But, you know, if it is on the topic, uh, that's fine. And uh, is there a way for teens to avoid, uh, the, uh, avoid hurtful words? It's, this is a very painful topic that people have become much more aware of in the past five years, I would say, than ever before. Even though the Chavetz Chaim spoke about this at length, you know, 150 years ago, 
But this is a very, and nowadays, I think things have been improved to a certain extent because we have, there's been a certain language inflation, which is a healthy one in many respects, that we now call it bullying. And I think 10 years ago even, this wasn't the language that was used, certainly not 20 years ago and more, where bullying you, people are getting the sense that the kind of teasing that often takes place among teenagers or even younger kids is, is truly painful and can have long-term damage. In you know, language of halacha, this is, will be called onas dvarim, but an onas dvarim just sounds a little soft, I think, to the modern ear. Because it just means like, but really it's a strong term because it means causing damage uh, with words. Even though kids in, you know, a gen, just a generation ago didn't really consider it that big of a deal. They considered part of the natural, you know, teasing of, of adolescence. I know that I can't name a book offhand right now, but I do know that people, you know, at the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation... And there, there are many books have been writing on this topic of slandering and libeling and using hurtful words to a much greater extent in the course of the last 10 years. And I'm sure, that, for example, Grand Judaica, which has a, an, extensive sec, an extensive section of those kinds of books, will have that. Because I, I have you know, seen that this has been de- dealt with much more seriously in the last five years, and it continues to need to be uh, dealt with seriously. Yeah. Yes? Yes. So whenever dealing with Bastin, there are two sides to this. There is the theoretical issue of how a Bastin operates, if you learn the Gemara. And then there is the way that Bate Dinim have functioned, certainly in the United States, but this goes back to Europe as well in a more practical way. And it has to do with the fact that no one ever wants to lose. And the fact of the matter is that nowadays in the United States, since, this I'm sure applies all over the world, but I'm here in the U.S., the fact that Bastin does not have any formal government-sponsored jurisdiction makes the halacha that Bastin has the last word almost non-existent <laughs> mean because they have, unless sometimes you have a person who will, uh, they will enter into an arbitration agreement to have an issue decided and a basin will act as a formal arbitrator. But again, even as with arbitration, these things are often appealed. So without even discussing who's right, who's wrong, and sometimes it's not a matter of right and wrong, because as we know, when it comes to dissolving a partnership or uh, dealing with a will, you, you're not dealing with right and wrong with the same clarity as Korach. You know, you're, you're dealing with honest you know, disagreements as to who owned this or how the partnership should be dissolved, or, you know, those kinds of issues. So this allows, in the practical sense, for a based-in to be questioned and for the losing side in the based-in to have, if not the right, then practically the power to go and ask someone else. It's painful, but it is clearly something that occurs and reoccurs 
uh, all over the world, and I don't even, I can think of a couple of cases offhand, I'm not going to mention them now, but, you know, there, there were cases here in our community, there are cases in all over the United States, in Israel, where a Bastion said something, and then the losing side in the Bastion said, nope, not good enough, and they sort of, you know, they relitigated it, you know, in front of someone else, and the other sides, the winner said, you don't have any right to do that. And they said, well, we're not listening to you, so what do you want to do? So they, you know, they went to, uh, they went to a new base in, or then they went to court. These things are, you know, very, very painful. The best thing I found to do, which is not so easy in my position, is just to ignore the whole thing. Meaning, when other people have disagreements of this kind that lead to a base in, I don't have to decide. I had someone come to my door 10, 15 years ago. And he said, I was in a Din Torah with Plony, and he's not listening to the Bastin. I want you to sign this letter that he has to listen to the Bastin. Comes to my house, to my door. Uh, so I said, as everyone should, I, I'd have to look into this. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is the first I've heard of this. He says, well, Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so signed already. So I said, okay, that's good. Then you don't need me. So <laughs> he said, no, but we want your signature as He said, so I said, I, look, if you're asking, my signature means my independent judgment. I haven't even spoken to those rabbis you're speaking about. It, so I have no judgment at all. I'd have to look into it. He says, well, I need this letter signed and distributed before Shabbos. So I said, then I'm not signing it. Thank you. You know, and I close the door, meaning I'm not going to be pressured into getting involved in something that is none of my business because you want to make a point. You know, so this is the kind of thing that it's healthy. If you have the misfortune to be involved in a Din Torah, then you have to deal with it. If it's not your monkey and not your circus, as the expression goes, then the best advice I can use based here on uh, Pirkei Avos here is... Uh, is to stay out of it. Which is, by the way, the secret to Lashon Hara. If you want to understand the best insight into Lashon Hara, it's priceless. It's extremely important to know this. I always wonder, why the Chavetz Chaim have to, like, this was the main issue in his mind, confronting European Jewry in the, you know, in the late 1800s. And it obviously was a serious issue. But I, this is how I think of it. If you have five people who have wronged you in one way or another. So you now have feelings of bitterness towards those five people. Now let's assume that everyone in the room has somewhere between one and ten people that they also have great difficulties in getting along with because of various offenses created over the years. It's enough of a burden on your own obligation of the haftal recha kamocha that you have those five people. And that's your struggle. And it's a painful struggle. Isn't that enough? Meaning, if you have to take on the burden of the other 200 people that people in this room have a problem with, so on top of the, your own burden of having feelings of bitterness and hatred or animosity towards those five people, why do you need the burden of another 200 people? Not that the burdens, their burdens aren't real and they might have reasons to dislike the people that they dislike. But that doesn't have to become your issue. A person will be crushed under that burden. It's hard enough to just like the people in your own life. Do you have to worry about liking and not disliking everyone else in everyone else's life? You know, so that's the approach I give to this whole issue of, uh, of a Din Torah. <laughs> Someone came to me 
three or four years ago about, I, I don't know why the person approached me, I think the person just likes to kibitz, and told me about some disagreement that was going on in some institution here in the community. And he said that the disagreement had been going on for two years. And I looked at him and I was upset that he told me about it, but I internally, and I told him, I said, do you know how happy I feel right now? Then I can just look back on the last two years of my life and I didn't know about what you're talking about. That is wonderful. I feel so good right now. It's like someone told me that, do you know how much money you saved in the last two years? Like, that's how I felt. So we should all be Zoha to not hear about, you know, all of the things, you know, you know, that go on that could add that additional burden. All right, does anyone? Yes. Um, what is the criteria for a Maglokit or Shem Shemayim? How do we know we're staying in the right lane? Like, how do we know we don't cross over to the crazy? How do we know we're staying in the right lane that we are engaged in a Maglokit or Shem Shemayim and not Shalol or Shem Shemayim? Sadly, the true answer almost always is you don't know. Unless, which is why it's extremely important to consult with someone else to just check to see if you are viewing this correctly. Doesn't always have to be a rav, you know, a rabbi. Sometimes it can follow the guidance of knelecha chaver, acquire a friend for yourself, and the, but someone whose judgment you trust, even as a friend, to check that your assessment of the situation and the burden that you have is, is for the sake of heaven and that you, you know, to proceed accordingly. By the way, sometimes something can be for the sake of heaven, but you don't have to get involved in it because a person can make the correct assessment. I won't say it's correct 100% of the time, but at least 50% of the time that yes, there's something that's going on and your friend is involved and he's L'shem Shemayim, he's for the sake of heaven, but my input will add nothing. So if my input will add nothing, I don't have to get involved because I might have strong feelings, but I'm not involved in the organization. I'm not, you know, I have no, what's the word? I have no shares in, you know, I have no involvement. So for me to get involved will only add heat and not light, as they say. And therefore it could be L'shem Shemaim, but you should still stay out of it. You know, but I think that can only really be done with guidance, because even something that seems the most heavenly topic in the world, when it comes down to it, your involvement, meaning as far as your own personal feelings are involved, will be not as altruistic as you might have hoped, and will just lead to more uh, negativity. So that's where c consulting, chaveirim, rabbanim, uh, you know, on some level, someone whose opinion you trust, you know, will be uh, good enough, will be good for that. Okay, once again, I would like to thank Jeff and Melanie for this thing, and uh, this is a real tribute to Jeff's mother's uh, memory, Ruspas Abraham. Thank you all for coming. We will be gathering uh, benchers now, and we'll be able to bench together. We have a minion, and uh, we should be zocha to meet on happy occasions and occasions that elevate the memory of our loved ones. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>